time zone, time of day. I don't even know. Something. Is whenever it? you're listening to this. Good whenever you're listening to this. Hello. I thought you were going to say like good time zone as in like I posted this at a good time zone. And I'm like, <laughs> that's probably not true. <laughs> Midnight drop coming in. <laughs> Yo, but with the way that I do things lately, probably. Yes. Yes. So I think we should address the major elephant in the room. That is, um, it's 2021. 2021. What's up? You kind of suck so far, but we're doing our best, I guess. Yeah. Well, <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, we're back on the podcast. So we are back on I the feel podcast. like that's better. New we took some, some months off, but I think it's, it's okay. It's, it's okay. Mm-hmm. We're surviving. <laughs> we are surviving. And that is a very important thing to do. And we hope you are surviving too, because things are stressful and we're doing our gosh darn diggity dangest. It's very important. I'm doing our best. Very important. As this she, is our best. As she clutches her cheeks in a in a <laughs> panicked manner. Everything's fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it's just holding her face, trying to keep it all together. It's together. Um, it's together because this is her locked files. And we are going to talk about murderous, creepy things together. That's what's holding us yeah. together. Murderous, creepy things. Correct. Because <laughs> we're the podcast that talks about true crime and gaming. Yes. Yes. Many uh, different other uh, pop culture. Pop? Pop? Oh, my. I'm pop? not sure what word that pop was. Fiction. Pop fiction. Pop fiction. Where we talk about pop culture, um, works of fiction, and then any other type of really cool thing in media that we can tie into uh, some some type of stories that we like to talk about especially when it comes to you know um the gross and gruesome sometimes so it's bad and dangerous very bad and dangerous and there (laughs) is quite honestly nothing more badder and nothing more dangerous and more badder isn't a word but we're going to go with it then you adding it to the dictionary yes we have to we have to listen it's 2021 we're we're all just doing our best and we're not trying to make it not more badder that's what we're trying to do that's that that's the that that's it used in a sentence and we're going to send it over to webster to be like hey change your entire (laughs) grammar structure please for me hashtag trying to make it not better (laughs) trying to make it not better (laughs) oh god oh my god i'm such a dork um that's okay my running hashtag in the last four months is um dye my hair to cope so (laughs) amount of times i have done something to my head is clinical <laughs> at this point <laughs> well i thought all of the colors looked wonderful on you and i especially like the current one so thanks you're welcome thanks. you're welcome i know the blue was very frustrating for you so i'm glad that you you you're in the space that you are in now yes yeah i could i could do a whole podcast on just the my hair my hair adventures call it like scary hairy or <laughs> I feel that I feel that in my soul a hairy journey <laughs> perfect <laughs> sounds so gross anyway <laughs> yeah so we 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 decided to come back with banger yeah. Of a of a of more like a more like a joint episode. Mm-hmm. Typically speaking, if if you're new to the podcast or it's been a while, <laughs> uh we usually take turn or we pick like a topic yes. and then we'll each like tell a story 
not similar to the other one except in topic. Yep. However, we did do a Nancy Drew episode where we equally talked about Nancy Drew. Still one of my favorites. Yeah, it was a good one. That was a great one. But usually we stick to a theme, but mm-hmm. our stories are not necessarily the same. No. Um, but this time we're coming back with like one topic we're both going to touch upon. We've just picked different aspects of this one topic to discuss. Yeah, and that one topic is the very, very hotly talked about newly released Netflix special topic is what we're talking about today. We are talking about the Cecil Hotel. Or as I like to call the Cecil. Cecil? 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 Cecil. Cecil. I think it's Cecil, but I'm just annoying. And I'm just like, <laughs> Cecil? We're just going to say both. Cecil? We're just going to say both. <laughs> and we're going to trade in between because, you know, it's fine. People know yeah. what we're talking Yeah. But I mean, like, so this, w- while brainstorming topics of discussion, we, we, we talked about the Netflix series because mm-hmm. it was getting a lot of traction on Twitter. And you know, their first like season, I think it's meant to be, is for uh, Elisa Lamb. And that stirred up a lot uh, as it should, um, as it does. And so we were talking about it and then we were just talking about the Cecil Hotel altogether. And it kind of led into like some pop culture. Now I'm saying it, pup, pulp. (laughs) Pup culture. Pup and Cecil. We're just we're We're gonna talk about ridiculous French bulldogs (laughs) and German shepherds. Welcome to the pup culture. Welcome Um, to the pup culture. (laughs) Woof woof. But yeah, uh, it tied into pop culture references, and then we just kind of went from there. So we'll both be talking about it. Yeah, about it. There's a lot of stories Um, coming from that place, and over a pretty lengthy and different time frame aspect in terms of like what decade did any of this any of these things happen which i thought was also pretty storied in itself when a lot of these different somewhat horrific but also somewhat fascinating stories tended to come out of it and i think both of us were in agreement when we started seeing the elisa lamb stuff come up of kind of being a little cringe about it just because yeah. when a lot of those videos uh, were initially released and a lot of that hype started going around and a lot of those videos about speculation and things. I I know, even though I'm fairly comfortable talking about gross and gruesome, it did feel weird. It did feel weird. And especially after how much that story has evolved and how much the family has become involved in terms of like not trying to make this a big deal again. Yeah. it, It kind of felt weird to know that this story was being released again and then everybody was kind of newly discovering the YouTube era of when all of those speculation videos got released, like with a lot of other creepy stories that happened. So yeah. And and spoilers, I I'm going to be covering Elisa Lam as part of as part of my part, but mm-hmm. but in a way that is the opposite of Netflix. Correct. Because like Yeba said, the virality of her her of her death is just sad like it's disturbing that people latched on to this as like a a trend or like mm-hmm. a commodity when it was like a tragic story yep and so um i was i was very disappointed in the netflix series by how they spent the first two episodes 
like a regular true crime documentary, like just going through all aspects of the case. And then it took a hard turn by like three or four where it just talked about YouTube conspiracy theories. Mm-hmm. And the rest of the season was just talking about YouTube conspiracy theories and the video and all the people that flocked to the hotel to investigate themselves. And it just, it, it, it strayed so far from the point. And it's, it's sad that like that is seemingly the most talked about part of the story. Right. So I'll get into that a little bit more, but, but that kind of started this whole like quest to talk about the Cecil and, and yeah, it's, it's a weird all over the place history across decades. It's kind of like an architectural Bermuda triangle in terms of just like, why have so many tragic stories and like singularly odd happenstances happened here? So yeah. It's and in- also they're not very well documented. No, it's a lot of it's pretty, I don't want to, I don't want to use the word shady because depending on the era that things happened, you know, police may not have just had the capacity to research or document more than they did. Or, you know, newspapers were too busy recording other things or worrying about other stuff that they couldn't worry about people who were staying at the Cecil Hotel in terms of whatever type of prejudice they may have had against people. Because I'm going to be talking about that in my story um, when it comes to that. Just the clientele that seemed to frequent weren't always the, the top of the societal food chain. So I feel like that also had a, a factor in what people cared about and what people thought was important because that does have some ramifications for some of the stories that happened there, which I will happily talk about in my second. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. And I'm also just, I did some back history on just the area in and of itself. And it also has to do with like legislation mm-hmm. that like put this place in this kind of just made laws and regulations and stuff to keep this place in such a low stance Mm -hmm. that any crime that took place there was obviously not going to get documented well. Right. Because of just how this whole area that the hotel existed in was treated. So again, like I don't, uh, some of our information may cross over because we're, we're touching on the same topic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But I tried to do some back history just so it wasn't all, look at this thing that happened in this hotel. <laughs> I like Gives the radio context. voice. I like the radio voice as you're announcing yeah. that. That was good. There you go. <laughs> someone's in here. Yep. Now I'm just now I'm just stealing someone's stand up. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So I guess without further ado, we're just I, I'm going to go first. Yes. Because it's my turn, I guess. It is. <laughs> It's Zoe's story time. Let's do it's this. It's my story time. Welcome to my story time. We're going to be learning math. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Uh, there might be some numbers involved, though. So, yeah, the Cecil Hotel, or as I like to call the Cecil, it, it's been called the Cecil Hotel. It's been called Hotel Cecil. It's been called the Cecil. It's also been called Stay on Main, which Ooh. was like a rebrand Interesting. for them. But basically, it opened on December 20th of 1924. It's a 19-floor hotel with 700 guest rooms, which is a lot. (laughs) That's actually more than I thought. That's crazy. Uh, The hotel has checkered history. That's one way to put it. With many suicides and deaths occurring there. 
And as of 2017, it was being renovated and redeveloped into a mix of hotel rooms and residential units. Mm-hmm. So they were trying to like have like half of it be residential units for like low income people below the poverty line, as well as like still keep it a hotel. It was built to be a destination for business travelers and tourists. And then after the Great Depression, it became a budget hotel Mm. located on Skid Row as part of Los Angeles, which is home to over 10,000 people experiencing homelessness. So detour for a second from the true crime to talk about just like a crime of humanity, which is just the back history of Skid Row. So like, I, I feel like it sets the setting of the Cecil Hotel to talk about like where this hotel is located. Why, why does this happen at this hotel so much mm-hmm. and, and, and the surrounding area? And that's because the surrounding area is Skid Row. And Skid Row, the term originated during the construction of the railroads in the mid-19th century. And it's an area of approximately 50 square blocks located just east of downtown Los Angeles, also known as Central City East, and has a long-standing history as a residential neighborhood for those with the least. So, poverty. Yep. Uh, The city's working poor, the unemployed, the disabled, and any other marginalized residents found their homes in the single-room occupancy hotels that were located throughout this relatively small neighborhood. And then between 1950 and 2000, 15,000 residential hotel apartments, which were the most affordable housing in Los Angeles, were destroyed, which threatened Skid Row's residential community and forced thousands of people into the city's shelters and onto the sidewalks. So the pattern of this transient population continued into and past the Depression well into the 1950s and 1960s. And in the 1970s, they saw a dramatic and profound change where um, once the population had been dominated mostly by men who suffered from alcoholism. So a lot of the homeless people in the area before the 1970s were suffering from alcoholism or mental health or disability. Mm -hmm. And now after the 70s, the population grew with Vietnam War veterans. Oh boy. Uh, As well as heavy drug users as like drugs became a major issue. So in addition to that, legislation was passed to deinstitutionalize hospitals who were serving individuals with severe mental illness. Oh no. So then that means that By the 70s, you had, you know, marginalized groups of people, homeless people that were forced out because of the residential hotel destruction. Mm -hmm. You had disabled, unemployed, working poor, as well as veterans and drug users and severe mental ill patients um, who were not receiving the help that they so desperately needed. Then in 1976, city officials established Skid Row as an unofficial containment zone where homeless people, shelters, and services would all be tolerated, but they wouldn't be tolerated anywhere else. So basically in the city of Los Angeles, they're shoving all of the homeless and all of the resources for the homeless into this one area to kind of contain them. It's super blatant. It's basically like super blatant redlining. That's just, I, oh, that's disgusting. 
Yeah, it's super gross. And they also did it because they wanted to keep those people away from tourists. Of course. They wanted to keep those people away from the rich, yep. the celebrities. Yep. Like they wanted to separate the what they saw as the problem. Yep. Out of sight, out of mind. It. Right. Yeah. A lot of urban Sorry, areas. <laughs> no, you're good. A lot of urban areas. As somebody from Chicago, um, I'm definitely aware of the segregation that happens in my city. And I will use such a loaded term as segregation because that's what it is. Um, Urban planning, especially when it comes to trying to keep either individuals, groups of peoples, or certain activities out of other places in cities definitely become victims when it comes to isolation, lack of community resources. And then just, especially from an economic point of view, you're pigeonholing these people into staying in those areas and not being able to move out because you don't want them to interact with any part of the community. So it's, right. it's awful. And obviously throughout those years, we know that a large portion of the working poor are people of color and marginalized Correct. groups of people. So it's, it's absolutely segregation. Mm-hmm. And after this was established, many visitors of Los Angeles. Of course, this is not true today, but many visitors of Los Angeles at that time never saw a single single homeless person oh when they God. would visit because of the containment zone. So then the recession in 1981 saw soaring unemployment and uh, it also was the start of the crack cocaine epidemic in mm-hmm. Los Angeles. So then the number of homeless people in Skid Row grew beyond the capacity of the shelters, and then the streets started to accommodate them. Right. Only 21% of new homeless people in the city report having a mental disability compared with the 55% of those who have been homeless for longer, which suggests that the rates of those mental illnesses go up as People are homeless for longer periods of time. Blue-collar workers in Los Angeles were able to earn middle-class wages and buy homes until the Cold War ended Mm -hmm. nearly 30 years ago from when this was written. Um, And the government was cutting back on military expenditure, which meant that the national defense industry, which was centered in Los Angeles, shrank by more than half. So that resulted in even more job loss. Of course. Because well-paid jobs were also replaced by minimum wage jobs and little to new housing was established, especially lower cost housing, that homeless population grew and grew and grew as people became unemployed, as they weren't getting paid. Even if they had a job, they weren't getting paid enough anymore to afford their housing. And low-cost housing was no longer being really offered in LA because of what LA was becoming. Right. So there was a steady incline of rent and that made housing unaffordable for most and many working poor families. So only a small percentage of housing is subsidized by the government in LA, which means that the vast majority is privately owned for rental housing and the rent is set at a free market rate. So they can set it to whatever the fuck they want. Um, so now there are, I wanted to, I, I, I do this a couple times in my spiel today, but I wanted to point out a few programs that are dedicated to helping the homelessness issue that's going on, um, and helping homeless people and addicts and mentally ill, et cetera, et cetera, mm-hmm. on Skid Row. One of them being Weingart. There's also another organization, which I found them in multiple articles, like mm-hmm. actually doing good and like statistically improving 
certain aspects of Skid Row, but it's the Union Rescue Mission, which is a religious organization, ah. and their whole page is like helping people with Jesus. And I, I always like, I don't want to be down on religious groups, especially when they're doing good. But I always have like some sense of like hesitancy, hesitancy because of how those religious groups can sometimes help people. Right. And are they really helping them? Right. But I found this particular group in multiple articles with stats saying that they were helping. Um, Of course, this is like what's going on in LA is like a major issue that not even like a nonprofit organization is going to be able to fix. Yeah. They can kind of, they can help the situation, but they're not going to solve the problem. No, this needs government intervention. This needs like Absolutely. Top, top down addressing of different social programs and infrastructure and support. That's yeah. That's way too much. Yeah. So from an article in February of 2020, There are, and again, this is Mm pre-pandemic, so this could have drastically changed with the unemployment rate. I didn't even think about that. Yeah, that's awful. But pre-pandemic, 40,000 homeless men and women are in Los Angeles in the county, not just Skid Row, Mm -hmm. but in the the whole, in all of Los Angeles, there are 40,000 homeless men and women who suffer from addiction, mental illness, or both. And more than a thousand will die on the streets this year, which was the quote. But I'm assuming that number was a lot bigger based on COVID. Right. Unfortunately. For the past decade, political leaders have relied on two major policies to address this crisis, which are harm reduction and housing first. Mm -hmm. But despite $619 million being spent in 2018, the homeless population actually increased. Oh, no. The reality of Los Angeles is that they've adopted a policy of containment, and if they construct enough supportive housing, they can placate the appetites of people raising their voice about this issue. Right. If they distribute enough needles to prevent an outbreak of plague and herd enough men and women into places like Skid Row where they won't disrupt the political fiction, then everything is okay. And that was a quote that I took. And that's basically saying that like the people in political power do very little to solve the problem. They do a lot to kind of placate people and hide the problem. Mm -hmm. So today Skid Row's homeless population is estimated to be at least 2,500 people and crime has been rising for years. I also... May have not kept it, but I did read something that was basically like housing is not going to fix this, right? Just building housing is not going to fix this. Exactly. Because it's not just housing that's a problem. Right. I I think people also don't understand how many resources need to go into a community to have a functioning community and how many things could potentially be lacking in a certain place to the point where you have grocery store deserts and food deserts and you have. Um, just just the lack of, of nutritional food or the lack of community recreational space or the lack of green space. Like when, when it comes to urban planning, there's so many facets that, that need to be accounted for in order to have highly sociable, well-maintained, sanitary, and also just like mentally well community involvement and livelihood. 
And I don't, I, th I think that's something that's evolved over time. And that's why you see a lot of these older neighborhoods that either were built at scale to be, you know, human level, kind of have this clash against newer urban centers that sort of lack that human scale in terms of like, you know, larger skyscrapers or, you know, obscene lobbies, or they become this, this policy of this is where the rich are and this is where the poor are. And then you also have uh, issues of gentrification. So it just, it just turns into this nasty muddled issue that has so many layers, but I, I feel like everybody needs to understand how many resources need to go in to have proper urban living. And that's yeah. something that is very lacking, especially for, I'm sure at a political politician, legislative level. So. Yeah, absolutely. And I think also when people like view homelessness, they, they think it's just, they think it's in the title. Like the solution is in the title. Like, Correct. oh, they're homeless because they don't have a home. And it's like, if we build them homes, then problem solved. No. And it's like, no, it's so, it's so much bigger than that. It's so much deeper than that. Yep. I do believe that harm reduction is important in yes. terms of like a person who is suffering from addiction is going to seek that mm -hmm. until they choose not to. Right. Like you cannot force someone into a situation they don't want to be in. And so by providing harm reduction, you're at least providing them a hopefully safe way to be doing this activity that will either save their life or save someone else's life. Correct. In order to kind of like prolong their life so that one day they can get help. Correct. But it's definitely like when when you're deinstitutionalizing hospitals and putting mentally ill people out on the streets and you're making what used to be well-paid jobs now minimum wage and you're not mm -hmm. raising the minimum wage and now like people stagnation. can't afford yep. to live like that is that is what's causing these problems further what we how we treat our veterans is what's causing these problems further and so like it's not just building them a house and everything's back to normal and okay like that's Correct. not how you fix that there need to be support there needs to be programs and and this is not even this is not even like skid row is a is a microcosm for the larger problem of america like like skid right. row is the the perfect uh terrarium of like, if we study this and we apply some changes and it works, that's something we're going to have to apply to all of fucking America because okay. this, this is also, not just isolated there. Yeah. And also of the 40,000 homeless people in Los Angeles, mm -hmm. 2,500 are on Skid Row. Yeah, that's so that containment. That's crazy. That containment plan did not work. No. First of all, not only was it not right, but it did not work. Like yeah. you didn't contain anything. No there's only a small percentage that's quote contained right. there. That's so yeah, it's just really just real stuff. But so, yeah. So with all of those issues, obviously came a long reputation of drug crimes, thefts, and sometimes fatal assaults on both homeless individuals and people that were not of that area. Although unprovoked attacks on area workers or visitors were very rare. Right. It was mostly just like homeless individuals that were were suffering from mm -hmm. these crimes. The reputation can and now the reputation of Skid Row is very similar to what is located right on right by it, which is the Cecil Hotel. And that hotel had 
numerous suicides, mysterious deaths, murders, assaults, drug crimes, ties to serial killers. And like Yabba said, it's a Bermuda Triangle of like weird shit. An example of that being Elizabeth Short, aka the Black Dahlia, was rumored to have been seen at the bar of the Cecil Hotel just days before her murder, which like the Black Dahlia is one of like the biggest like unsolved crazy murders in LA and unsolved oh, unsolved <laughs> quote unquote unsolved we're using it's, bunny ears on that one yeah because that's that's very much a like we kind of know who did it they just didn't pursue it hard enough yeah. and we just never got enough evidence evidence so, yeah yeah but it's super weird though that she was seen at this hotel it's like cursed yes so the bottom two floors of the Cecil were for long-term residents and then there were the the stay on main which is what they titled it, were youth hostels on Mm. floors four through six. Okay. And then floor seven and up were the Cecil hotel rooms. Got it. So they like split the building into like sections. That's that's actually a lot less long-term residents than I thought. So that's good that you pointed that out because that gives me a little more structure around that. Yeah, it was, and I think, I think some of the rooms... Because it was, again, it's so weird how, like, not concrete information there is on this hotel. Like, I, I had that I, a lot. I had yeah, that a lot. Yeah, I was reading, like, various stuff. articles that all had, like, different things. So, like, it was, on this article, it was the first two floors were long-term residents. Mm-hmm. But in another article, it was all of Stay on Main was either long-term or youth hostels. Like, oh. you could go either or. okay. Um, and then the rest was the hotel. Like it was, it was weird. The yeah. stay on main stuff is weird. Yes. From the Netflix documentary, they had Kenneth Gibbons, who was a former long-term resident of the Cecil, uh, stated that anything higher than the sixth floor was dangerous, which I also think is weird. That is weird. Because again, like anything above the sixth floor was dangerous. So the hostels and the long-term residents weren't dangerous, but the hotel was dangerous, which you would maybe think is the other way around. Yeah. But maybe not. But Given said that it was pretty much lawless back in the 80s, and usually the higher floors in the Cecil were where people got murdered. Oh, good. So, cool. So like I said, I'm going to talk about, I'm actually going to talk about two stories, and one of those is Elisa Lamb. And again, I do want to point out that I don't wish to glamorize or sensationalize her case any further. And I'll, I'll, I'll restate that I am not happy with the Netflix docuseries that covered her case because it did dedicate a large chunk of the season to just her YouTube virality yep. and all of the online sleuths that like were trying to solve the case and, and make conspiracy theories about this poor woman. So I've had enough conspiracy theories for 2021. Thank you very much. (laughs) Just saying, just saying on Twitter, like we discussed, there was an overwhelming response to the, this, the docuseries and um, theories associated with the case uh, often don't address the mental health aspect of Mm -hmm. this story. A lot of things that you'd find online you know, all the conspiracy theories or the, or the detective sleuth stuff doesn't talk about mental illness. 
and turning her death into these conspiracies or ghost stories only further trivializes mental illness and misrepresents this young woman's struggle. And so I am not going to be talking about any of the conspiracy theories. I will be talking about how I feel about the case at the very end, but I'm not starting a conspiracy theory on it. Um, I just have questions. Mm -hmm. You're here. Um, But let's get into it. So Elisa Lam, also known by her Cantonese name, and I'm going, I've watched videos, Lam Hao Yi, Lam Ho Yi. I think I said that right. Hopefully I said that right. I watched a YouTube video to try and pronounce it correctly. I've had to do that. And I appreciate that those videos exist. And if I, if I feel, if I still don't feel comfortable, then I ask somebody who, who I at least know, uh, knows the language to just, just say, just say it so I can say it correctly. Thank you. I just wanted to honor her Cantonese name. Yes. Um, Lam Ho Yi. She was a 21 year old tourist from Vancouver, British Columbia. And her obvious death and disappearance received widespread attention. She was born April 30th, 1991. Uh, Her family had immigrated from Hong Kong to Canada, where they opened a restaurant in Burnaby, British Columbia. And Lam was a student at University Hill Secondary and the University of British Columbia. So she really wanted to travel like that was her big thing was that she really wanted to like see the world before she like settled down into like a career. So she wanted to like go on this big trip and she was going to travel alone to California on Amtrak and inner city buses. She visited the San Diego Zoo. She posted photos. And then on January 26, she arrived in L.A. And after two days, she checked into the Cecil Hotel. Now, she was first initially assigned a shared room in the hotel's fifth floor, 506B. However, her roommates complained about like her having some type of odd behavior. And okay. so Lamb was moved to a private room of her own after two days staying with these roommates. Okay. Now, it's a bit confusing as to her booking. So... One article claims that Lamb did not actually stay at the Cecil Hotel because Mm. she was staying at the stay on main part, which are the youth hostels, which is how she ended up with a room with roommates. Because the Cecil at that time had converted half of its floors, like I said earlier, into youth hostels or long term residencies. Okay, Um, so she actually wasn't staying at the hotel part of the Cecil. She was staying in the hostels. And it's super weird because they have like two different lobbies and two different entrances. Huh. But they use the same elevator. That is weird. Super weird. Super weird layout. So Lamb had been diagnosed with bipolar disorder and depression. She had been prescribed four medications, Wellbutrin, Lamictal, Seroquel, and Effexor to treat these disorders. Uh, She had no history of suicidal ideations or attempts, although she had one report Uh, where she had gone missing for like a brief period of time. Mm -hmm. She contacted her parents every day while traveling, except on February 1st of 2013, which was the day she was scheduled to check out of the Cecil to leave for Santa Cruz. Her parents did not hear from her and got concerned and called the LA police department and filed a missing persons report. Uh, She had not checked out of the hotel And um, the hotel actually confiscated her things, believing that she left and just left her belongings behind. 
because apparently that was a thing that happened frequently. Uh, so they just messed up a crime scene, <laughs> um, which they didn't know, but they confiscated her stuff from her room. Um, so police searched the hotel to the extent that they legally could because it was partially long-term residents. Ah. They couldn't search certain rooms without warrants. That makes sense. And also because of how big the hotel was, they just didn't have the manpower to search all of it. That also makes sense. Because it's huge. But they had dogs go throughout the building and they also checked the rooftop, which there is footage of the officers checking the rooftop with a helicopter overhead. So they check the rooftop. They don't see anything. The canines were unsuccessful detecting her scent. On February 15th, which was another week with no sign of lamb, the LAPD released the the well-known video, which was the last known sighting of her in the elevator surveillance camera. And um, they did this because they honestly had no leads. Right. Um, And they wanted to see if anyone could assist in the involvement. It's important sometimes. Yep. In approximately two and a half minutes of footage, she makes unusual moves and gestures. She leaves the elevator a couple times. Um, She presses all the buttons. She leaves the door closes. Again, I'm not really going to get into the, the video aspect of it. Yep. During the search for her, guests at the hotel began complaining about low water pressure. And some even claimed that their water was murky and had an unusual taste. So on the morning of February 19th, Santiago Lopez, a hotel maintenance worker, found Lamb's body in one of the four 1,000-gallon tanks located on the roof, which was providing water to guest rooms, the kitchen, and the coffee shop. He took the elevator to the 15th floor, took a staircase up to the roof. He turned off the rooftop alarm, which was attached to the door, and then had to climb up onto the platform where the four tanks sat then climb another ladder to get to the top of the main tank. He says that he noticed the hatch to the main water tank open, and when he looked through the hatch, he saw Lamb lying face up in the water. So the tank had to be drained and cut open since the maintenance hatch was actually too small to accommodate the equipment needed to remove her body. On February 21st, the Los Angeles coroner's office issued a finding of accidental drowning with bipolar disorder as a significant factor. The full coroner's report released in June and stated that her body had been found naked with her clothing and some of her belongings in the water with her, Mm -hmm. which were all coated in a sand-like particulate, which I'm not really sure what that's from. Hmm. And they don't go into that. Okay. But it was weird enough to put on the report, I guess. I guess Or so. it was essential enough to put on the report. Hey, we appreciate thoroughness. <laughs> well, it's not all thorough. Yeah. Because... I spoke too soon. Damn it, I spoke too <laughs> soon. So there was no evidence. They found no evidence of physical trauma, sexual assault, or suicide. And her toxicology test showed traces consistent with her prescription medication, as well as non-prescription drugs like... Cinetab and, and ibuprofen. Okay. So like science medication. Uh, a very small quantity of alcohol was present, but no other recreational drugs. The investigation determined how she had died, but it didn't really cover how she got into the tank, um, which became a very 
like it became a center point for a lot of theories around her case, which was how did she get in the tank? Yep. For her to have entered the water tank on her own, she would have needed to make her way to the hotel roof undetected, either through a locked and alarmed door or via a fire escape on the side of the building, which is pretty like that's pretty like terrifying to go up. I mean, we're talking about a 700 room hotel. I don't know how many, did it say 19 stories? I think it was think either 17 or 19 stories, something like that. Yeah. Mm, 19 floor. Yeah. Yeah. So 19 floors. So that's pretty I high assume, up. I mean, you're at least going, if it stops at, if the elevator stops on the 15th floor, like I would assume that it's at least four stories of a ladder mm-hmm. to get onto the roof. Mm hmm. On the side of a building, which is just crazy. And then even just the two sets of ladders to get on top of the water tank. Well, yeah. So so the fire escape on the side of the building at the location of the tanks, you would first have to climb up onto the platform that the tanks sit on, then squeeze between them along with other plumbing equipment. Then you'd find another ladder, which you would use to climb onto one of the four cisterns And then each of the heavy metal lids needed to be propped open. Mm -hmm. So it was not like I went on the roof. I found a water tank. Like it was figure out how the fuck to get to the roof. Once you get to the water tanks, it's climb, squeeze, shimmy, climb, and then like lift up a very heavy hatch. There's certainly a lot of steps when it comes to getting there. Correct. Yep. Not saying that it can't be done but saying that it's a lot. Yes. So the doors and stairs to that access the hotel's roof are locked and only staff with passcodes and keys can enter and any attempt to force them open would supposedly trigger an alarm. The hotel's fire escape could have allowed her to bypass the security measures and her scent was lost near a window that connected to it. Mm. So it's very possible. Mm-hmm. A video posted to the internet by a Chinese user after her death showed that the hotel's roof was accessible by this fire escape and that two of the lids of the water tank had been open, Mm. which is like different information, which is weird. But I threw that in because I found it. Yep. But that's also different from a lot of other accounts. Now, apart from the question of how she got onto the roof, uh, how did she get in the tank by herself? All four tanks are four by eight foot cylinders propped up on concrete blocks. There's no fixed access to them. And hotel workers would use a ladder to look into the water through the hatch. They were protected by these heavy lids, like I said, and Mm -hmm. it would be difficult, if not impossible, to replace them from within the tank because you cannot stand up. Now, the hotel employee said that he found the lid open. However, there's another account where he says that he found the lid closed, opened it, and then when he brought the police over, the police wrote down that the lid was open because the lid was open from the worker. Ah. So there's discrepancies there, too, as to whether did he find the lid open or did he open it go get the police, and the police found the lid open. Correct. So there's that. So some of the theories were that she was under the influence of illicit drugs, suggesting that they were broken down during the period that her body decomposed because it did take a while to find her. 
And also, uh, she could have taken a rare cocktail of drugs since the hotel was notorious for that kind of activity. And a normal screening for recreational drugs would not be able to detect any weird stuff that she had taken. Right. However, there was very low levels of her prescription drugs in her system. And the amount of pills left in her prescription bottles suggested that she was actually under medicating herself and was possibly like, uh, oh, and had recently, excuse me, recently stopped taking her medication for her bipolar disorder, which might have led to a psychotic episode. Mm -hmm. So this is where like they were thorough, but not thorough. Mm -hmm. The autopsy report and its conclusions were also questioned because it did not include the results of the rape kit and fingernail kit, nor did it include any information to show that it had even been processed. Okay, that's not great. It also had records of subcutaneous pooling of blood in the lower area of her body, which could suggest sexual assault, but it could also be a result of bloating during decomp. Okay. So the coroner's pathologist appeared to be ambivalent about her conclusion that her death was accidental. So super weird inconsistencies, kits not being processed, yeah. information that could be something bad or just, you know, decomposition. Like That's, That seems to be a pretty big miss to claim that something didn't happen if you didn't process all of the information that would have actually made that type of report actually conclusive. So that's that's unfortunate that that happened. Yeah. And I mean, it also could be that they processed it, found nothing and didn't include it in the report. But the fact that it's not in the report can lead you to believe, like, did it even get processed? Right. Right. So in September of 2013, Elisa's parents did file a wrongful death suit against the Cecil Hotel, alleging that the hotel should have secured the water tank that she drowned in. However, the judge dismissed it because uh, for her to have drowned in the water tank, she would have had to access the roof via one of two access points, scale a 10-foot ladder, push aside a 20-pound lid, and then fall or climb into the tank, which he said, like, should never have happened. Like, there's no way the hotel could have prevented that any further. Mm. Like, that was her decision. You can't file a a wrongful death suit. So... This is overall a very tragic story, unfortunately, about a woman's fight against her mental illness. And again, I don't want to draw conspiracies upon her death, but I still have so many questions. Yep. Just about the case in general because of the discrepancies. Yeah. Right. It's not. It's just, and my little sleuth brain can't let it go. Yep. Because I just. I don't want to dismiss her mental health, but I also want her to get justice if she needs it, you know, Correct. and I don't like sitting. I I want to end the stigma against mental illness so that people take it more seriously and 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 have people able to get the help that they need. But I also don't want to use mental illness as something that we can just write off as like a oops, yep. like that happened. Yep. Oops, because that's not cool either. So. My personal belief is I I wonder if foul play was involved at all. And with the existing history of hate towards people of color, but 
as we've seen recently, unfortunately, Asian women Mm -hmm. and with the history of hate towards Asian communities in this country, uh, which did exist at the time of her death, along with the crime rate in that area and the proximity that she had to those potential threats, I feel like it's entirely possible that someone could have taken advantage of her while she was in a psychotic episode. Mm -hmm. So I don't negate that she had one, but I do wonder if someone took advantage of her, whether it was because of racism towards her or just because of sexism and, you know, someone being sleazy and taking advantage of a vulnerable woman. Right. I don't understand how the police and their helicopter, like I said earlier, I said helicopter with aggression. Yep. Because when the police searched the rooftop, they searched the rooftop and they had a helicopter looking over the roof. Mm -hmm. And I don't understand if the hatch was open, how they did not see that. Right, right. And if someone on the internet could see that two hatches were open, how did a helicopter miss that? Right. How did the how did looking at the helicopter footage miss that? You right. know, like it just seems weird. Like I said, there's weird discrepancies in the story about the staff member of how he found the scene and were her clothes removed as a result of hypothermia mm-hmm. or her being weighted down and trying to gain buoyancy or was it from something else? Right. Did she really go through all of those motions herself to hide there or to for whatever reason, or did someone lead her there or put her there because they were taking advantage of someone who was mentally ill? Right. So like I said, I can't, me personally, I, I don't want to write this off as like a mental illness, like sad story. Cause like it just, there's not enough pieces for me that are like clean and cut. And I just, I personally like want to respect her memory and like advocate for justice if she so needs it correct um which is why i still am not accepting the story that everyone's pushing um so some resources to help asian americans and pacific islanders are stop aapi hate uh the asian americans advancing justice and i think the most relevant to this story is the asian mental health collective which works towards normalizing and destigmatizing mental health within asian communities which they quote say is apparent that there is a generational and cultural rift in many asian families with mental health woven through both overt confrontations and unspoken grievances as a mm. result mm. so i just wanted to name those things because i feel like it was very important to the story and um Some not great depictions of this because of its virality have been plot elements in 2005's horror film Dark Water, which was an American remake of an earlier Japanese film of the same name, where they showed a dysfunctional elevator and discolored water gushing from the building's faucet, which led to a body being discovered in a water tank. And and this whole body being discovered in a water tank, like, became a horror movie trope. I was about to say, it became a motif. It became a, yeah, a that, theme. Yep. That ended up in a lot of things, which was a How to Get Away with Murder episode. Two films in Hong Kong, one being Hungry Ghost Ritual, and the other one being actually unreleased. The dude wanted to make it based on Elisa Lam, went to L.A. to do research on the Cecil Hotel, 
but I didn't find anything about the movie actually coming to fruition. That's good. Um, American <laughs> Horror Story, right? American Horror Story, their whole hotel season is primarily based on the Cecil. Yep. And a video game, which I have been pronouncing Yik. It's actually Y2K. <laughs> really? Yeah. I thought it oh, was. Oh, because it's, it's Roman numeral for Roman two. numeral two. Oh. I totally thought it was called Yik. Shit. And it's called Y2K. <laughs> Damn. But you know what? I don't feel that bad because get ready. This sucks. Yik. (laughs) (laughs) Doubling down. Yik is now yuck. Let's just say that. Yuck, a postmodern RPG is an indie role-playing video game made by American developer Axe Studios. It's on a bunch of platforms. And it was released in 2019. The game is a colorful 3D Japanese-style RPG set in the 1990s and based around a mystery in a small town. So it's surreal Japanese-style RPG. It starts with, after witnessing a woman vanish from an elevator with no plausible explanation, college graduate Alex gathers friendly misfits from the internet to investigate her disappearance. Alex's search for the truth leads him and his companions into a journey rife with mystery and danger. So there are eight characters who are message board friends. They work together to investigate this mystery around the viral video star called Sammy Pack, uh, who goes missing in a supernatural event. You can control the characters on turn-based style battles. The combat consists of timing-based actions and damage attacks. There are six dungeons to explore, which include battles, puzzles, and traps to be avoided. It's approximately 25 hours of gameplay. And it was developed by brothers Andrew and Brian Allenson, which are two fucking white dudes. Of course. (laughs) As far as I know, the only picture I could find is of Andrew and he's white. And so I'm assuming his brother is also white. That's probably a fair assumption. But they created a fully featured prototype in 52 days to showcase at PAX East in 2013 and then got picked up by a publisher because of it. So the reason why I'm not thrilled with this is, if you already can't tell, they heavily draw from Elisa Lamb's case. Mm -hmm. But they draw from, like, the viral video side of it and kind of, like, use that as their main plot. They also directly reference her and kind of feature her in the game by showing a video to the main character, Alex, which depicts Sammy, uh, who has an undeniable resemblance of Elisa Lam. I'm shaking being, my head. Shaking being my head. taken away by a demonic entity from inside an elevator. And if you look at the pictures of this video game, it like they recreated the video in like pixel art, mm-hmm. which is like gross um, and wrong on so many levels. Because somebody actually died. And you're reusing their likeness in an entertainment value. That's not. Yeah. Not even their likeness, but you're using their last. Their like, last known appearance. Moments. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you're recreating the surveillance footage in pixel art. Like, how do you think that that's OK? That's uncomfortable. And apparently Sammy's character is the fate of her is bloodier and more gruesome than it needs to be is a quote. So Axe Studios 
had uh, now deleted, but had made comments on Reddit where they reportedly stated that the team was moved by the terrible case of Elisa Lamb and that her suffering was influential in the development of the game, which is just creepy. Also, don't try to profit off of someone else's tragedy. Don't do that. That's not. Yeah, you, you're you're making something that's self-serving using somebody else's experience. That's not. No, you you can't. Well, do and that. also, it's not in like a. It's not in a respectful way. It's you're no, not paying it's homage. Not in a respe- it's not in a respectful way. No. It's not in a like investigative way. No, like it's just disturbing. Yeah, and rude and uncomfy and. I also read an article where Andrew Allenson is potentially a transphobe. So I'm not really that upset about bashing this game. Yep. But it's just like out of all the video game references that we've discussed on our podcast where they tie into true crime or mm-hmm. were influenced or relatable, this one is by far like the most distasteful and like like this is not it. No. This is not how you do that. No. Like it's just it's wrong. I wrote fucking ew. <laughs> uh, considering I just finished Little Misfortune, yikes forever. So, yikes forever. <laughs> yikes forever. <laughs> well, more fucking ew, because I'm not done just yet. This one's shorter, though, so bear with me. This one's also ew, but aside from Elisa Lamb and the Cecil Hotel, other shit went down at the Cecil Hotel. And one of the other shit that's gone down is serial killer Jack Unterweiger. Oh, boy. Unterweiger, who is a world famous, infamous serial killer who just so happened to stay at the Cecil Hotel during a lot of his crime. So he is actually an Austrian serial killer who uh, murdered several women. And he was born on August 16th, 1950 in Austria. He was abandoned by his mother, who was a sex worker or supposedly a sex worker and potentially sent to prison for fraud. So I'm not really sure she abandoned him. Mm-hmm. She might have just been arrested. Sorry. When you said his birthday, it was scarily very similar to the other person I'm going to talk about's birthday, but I was a decade Ooh. off. So it's okay. It's okay. okay. I was, I was decaying <laughs> off because I was about to have like a, wait a minute, what? Did we and do? Now it's fine. <laughs> did, it's fine. Everything's fine. Did we fine. do the same one? I had a, no, um, it wasn't the same one. It was just like our serial killer is born that day and oh, like the same star yeah, sign. like a trend? Yeah. Like that, you, that made me panic for about three, three whole seconds. I saw seconds. a TikTok about that. So. <laughs> where I saw a TikTok where they were like, everyone thinks that serial killers are Gemini. Or Scorpios. I'm going to look up. Or Yeah, and I'm going to look up the, like, everyone's birthday. Like, I'm going to look up all the most infamous serial killers and they're track all Pisces. their birthdays. I'm offended. Yeah, they're fucking Pisces. They're, they're Pisces. I'm a Pisces. Sagittarius. Is Listen. this why I'm fascinated by them? <laughs> hmm? I'm, I'm giving you the look, but it's not a, it's not a judgy <laughs> look. It's just, you know, I'm an Aquarius, so we're, we're a little busy, you know, trying to take over the world. But we're not really focusing on like individualized murder. So, oh, you know what? New activity for me. I know what I'm doing tomorrow. I'm going to look up every cult leader <laughs> and their birthday, and I'm going to statistically find which sign they are. They're good. I'm, I'm the gonna, most of them. I'm gonna. I'm gonna. I'm gonna make a guess right now, and I'm gonna say okay. they're gonna be Leos 
they're going to be Gemini's and they're going to be Sagittarius. I'm going to I'm going to make that assumption okay, right wait, now. I'm writing this down. I'm going to make that assumption everyone right pause, now. Pause, get a snack. <laughs> <laughs> so Leo. Leo's, Gemini's, Sag- and Sagittarius. Gemini's. Oh, absolutely Gemini. <laughs> yeah. I'm pretty sure, and I'm not going to say that on the on the podcast, never mind. <laughs> I'll tell you later. Sweet. Sorry, sorry listeners. <laughs> that one's just not appropriate. <laughs> That's not Herlock Files tea. It will be otherwise tea. It's personal tea. I'll tell it on stream. Sweet. <laughs> It'll still be recorded and put on the internet. Don't worry. It'll still be recorded somewhere. It's just not good for here. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. So I'm not really sure she abandoned him. Uh, I, I don't know. She could have just been arrested. Right. But regardless, that made Jack live for seven years with his alcoholic grandfather, who was apparently abusive. And he turned to crime in his early teens. Jack, not the grandfather, Mm -hmm. but maybe also the grandfather. I don't know his life. Jack turned to crime in his early teens and was first arrested at 16 for assaulting a sex worker. His first murder victim was 18-year-old Margaret Schaefer, who he strangled to death with her own bra after he sexually assaulted her and dumped her in the woods. And this was in 1974 when he was about 24 years old. He would later claim that he saw his mother's face in Margaret and it brought back feelings of abandonment as a child. So he was sentenced to life in prison for her death. Just Austria not fucking around. Good. Right off the bat. As they shouldn't. I say uh, right before I also say he was released after only 16 years. The fuck? Excuse Uh me? Yep. Life. Apparently a life sentence is 16 years. Who would have known? Because he was thought to have successfully re-socialized. Uh, he became a fixture on television talk shows and was posing as the model of prison rehabilitation. Oh, So no. while he was in prison for 16 years, he read books, he studied and, and got an education, and he basically put on this charade of a rehabilitated prisoner. He found better ways to mask his sociopathic behavior is what I'm hearing. Ding, 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 yeah. ding, Yeah. Great. Because in the first year after his release, he killed six sex workers in Austria <gasps> in 12 months. Agitated groan. Uh. Some of those victims were as follows. September 15th in 1990, Uh, In Prague, actually, which is uh, one of his victims that I'll say later is in Czechoslovakia. So this Blanka Bokhava, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Bakova, probably Bakova. Blanka Bakova. I'm I'm the worst with names. She was his first victim post prison. And she was left uh, lying on her back nude with a pair of gray stockings knotted around her neck. And her legs were open but covered with leaves. She was found by the Vitava River in Prague. Um, She had gone to a bar the night before, left around 11.45 p.m. She was last seen talking to a man around 40, which is how old he would be after getting out of prison. Mm -hmm. And no one could offer details. Blanca was not a sex worker. Not that that matters. Right. But. In terms of the pattern of his victims. I was about to say, in terms of of who he seemed to favor when he would commit crimes, unfortunately. Yes. He seemed to go for easily exploited. 
she didn't fit his like mo Mm -hmm. but it shouldn't matter whether she was a sex worker or not that is correct they're they're all people yes Several weeks later, a sex worker from Graz, Brunhild Masser, was reported missing. And Austria actually had very few problems with sex workers. So when these women started to go missing, they became very concerned. Two months later, another sex worker had gone missing. And a month after her disappearance, her body was found by hikers in the woods. Brunhild's body was also discovered uh, a few days after that. Uh, her body was badly decomposed and was found in the woods as well. Um, there were no signs of robbery and her manner of death matched all of the other victims. So he went on to kill several more women. And later on, the breakthrough would be that a retired 70 year old investigator, August Schenner, recalled a series of murders and attacks he had dealt with in the 70s which were remarkably similar to the murders that were now being committed in Australia. And the culprit was Jack Unterweger. (gasps) So like Jack was assaulting sex workers, murdered Margaret, and then went to prison. And then when he got out of prison, he started murdering women. And this retired investigator noticed that the new women that were being murdered matched all of Jack's crimes prior to him being in prison. So he connected it. Holy cow. However, in 1991, Jack was sent to Los Angeles because somehow he had gotten a job to cover crime stories for an Austrian magazine. <laughs> what? I, I just did the largest, most dramatic double take for Zoe. Um, so... <laughs> Okay, this is very reminiscent to the cannibal in Japan who became like a television star and like people went interviewed him and like asked him like, so how is it to eat people? And it's just it's it's one of those things that blows my fucking mind. Like, I okay, listen, listen, I, I know that in the moment it's hard to believe that you're being duped. But can we please, for the love of everything that is holy, understand that if somebody is showing sociopathic tendencies, you likely cannot cure sociopathic tendencies with incarceration. That's like a that's like a personality thing. And um, don't trust that. What is wrong with you? Why? Why? Okay, celebrity status should not be given to serial killers. I'm sorry. That's just. That's the, the correct. So, this is why Ted Bundy makes me uncomfortable. This is why Ted Bundy <laughs> makes me uncomfortable. I hate Ted Bundy for this exact reason. It's just like, ugh. anyway, sorry. I okay, mean, I'm done. <laughs> aside from his celebrity status, I really don't think you should be hiring crime scene journalists who have a history of committing murder. If, if, okay, just because they've made <laughs> crime scenes does not mean they should be a journalist of crime scenes. That's not how right? that works. No, that, that is okay. not a resume so, qualifier. Well, they sent him to Los Angeles to cover crime stories where he was allowed as a journalist to go on calls with police officers. So obviously, that's like that's like porn for him. What is wrong with you? Oh, my God. I mean, granted, granted, I I mean, a cab, but also like 
in their defense, I don't think they knew that he was, I was a murderer. I about to say, if they, they don't know that, they're just like, oh, yeah, someone with a press like, badge, let's go. Yeah, he has a press badge, we're going to take him on calls. Jesus. And of course, sociopaths have a charming personality, so I'm mm-hmm. sure he talked his way into that one. Mm-hmm. So the police honestly believed that he was just learning about crime in L.A. as a journalist from Austria. However, experts now look back and see that he was using those trips to scout for his next victims because he was charming the police into showing him the red light districts. Fuck. So he also, while in L.A., stayed at the Cecil Hotel. Of course he did. And he had the perfect cover story for meeting sex workers because he would meet them while out with the police he would speak to these women who were familiar with the Cecil Hotel because mm-hmm. of its history. Mm-hmm. And they would agree to come to his room to aid in his investigations. Just, it, it's like serving up on a silver platter. That is just disgusting. Yep. Ugh. So while in the States, it is believed that he brutally murdered three sex workers in the Los Angeles area. His first victim was 35-year-old Shannon Exley, um, who was found in Boyle Heights. His uh, number two was 33-year-old Irene Rodriguez, who was found in the same neighborhood 10 days later. And Peggy Booth, who was 26, was found dead in Malibu Canyon. All three women were sex workers, and all three were savagely beaten before they were strangled with their own bras, much like his other victims. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were also sexually assaulted and covered with branches and leaves, which apparently is also his thing. So these were all identical murders to the ones he committed in Austria. And as soon as officials recognized descriptions of the L.A. killer, because, again, witnesses would see him and give the police his description and the police officer would be like, that sounds like that guy I went for a ride with. By the time officers put the two and two together, he was already safely back in Austria. Son of a bitch. Of course, in Austria, he was under the surveillance of their police because of all the crimes he had committed. And once they found enough evidence to arrest him, they stormed his home, like SWAT broke into his home to arrest him. But he had escaped with his girlfriend, Bianca, and they were traveling through Switzerland and France. Now, along the way, he would make phone calls to the Austrian media, taunting the police, as well as proclaiming his innocence. And a trail of credit card receipts led them to find him in Miami, Florida, where he was captured without resistance in 1992. Now, I don't know if this is true, but I did find an article that stated that the FBI caught him by posing as reporters from a U.S. magazine offering him 8,000 euro to tell his side of the story. Honestly, with this dude, which what I'm guessing now that his ego and arrogance is through the heckin' roof, having to having been able to get away from this, I feel like that could have been very plausible. I feel like that could have been totally true. If he's calling media outlets to like interview him, I yeah. feel like it it's totally true. Yep. Once in custody, he was accused of killing eleven sex workers in total since his release from prison. Six were in Austria, three were in Los Angeles. Oh, and two more were in Czechoslovakia. I'm just looking at the timetable for this. He did this in two years. Yeah. Oh, my God. That's yeah. OK. That's insane. Yeah. So he like murdered somebody, went to prison for 16 years. Yep. And then murdered all these women in the span of two years. While being supported and tracked by Austrian media, American police, 
and was able to fly internationally. Like that, I, yeah. anyway, okay. It's, going, it's the 90s, just going around. Yes, so. The Czechs didn't want him, but Austria and the United States squabbled over jurisdiction. And eventually Jack's homeland won out because Austrian officials agreed to try him for the murders committed on their ground as well as on U.S. soil. Oh, okay. That's so good. because they were going to try him for those murders as well, America was like, you can have them. Great. That was nice of them to do that. I know that that's probably right. a huge international hoobla. So. Yeah. So the proceedings finally began on April 20th of 1994 and lasted for two months, including testimonies from FBI experts imported from Quantico and uh, Jack seemed confident throughout the whole trial, never failing to smile for the cameras. But evidence was mounting up against him, and he was found guilty of nine counts of murder. So he was found guilty for the Prague victim, all three Los Angeles victims, and the five in Austria. On June 29th of 1994, Jack was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. <sighs> However, and you're not going to like this. I'm, of course I'm not. That night, he took his own life by hanging himself with a rope made from shoelaces and a cord from his trousers. Bless it. Those he used the same intricate knot that he used on his victims to kill himself. And this is the part that I fucking hate because he died before he could appeal his verdict under a technicality of Austrian law, Jack is officially considered innocent despite his original guilty verdict. And I can see Yeba's head spinning off of her body. <laughs> can we, I, oh, I know that it's in our fucking law that you can't prosecute people who are already dead, but God damn it. Fuck that well, guy. so in their in their legal system, you have your guilty verdict, you appeal. Right. Once you appeal and that's decided, then you are either guilty or innocent. If you are if you are not given that appeal, you are innocent. There is no guilty verdict. That's so bananas. several audio. I know <laughs> it's fucked. Uh, several audio cassettes were recovered from his cell, but uh, their content has never been divulged. And that is the infamous serial killer, Jack Unterweger, of the Cecil Hotel, briefly, and also Elisa Lamb. That was all very good. BT dubs. Sorry it took so long. <laughs> no, you're fine. Also, um, I had to look up a picture of this guy just to like, no, I'm getting major Ted Bundy vibes and I just want to fucking punch him in the face. Right? Yeah. Ooh, what a gross little piece of crap. All right. So, funnily enough, and this is a weird transition, but I'm going with it. So, Give funnily good, enough, good. <laughs> my stories that I have chosen include a sad story about a woman who stayed in the Cecil Hotel and a serial killer. Oh, we're matching. We are matching. So even though they are completely different stories, like I said, there seems to be a pretty interesting Bermuda Triangle effect in terms of just weird coincidences and happenings and terrible events that seem to happen in this place. So I, I, so I'm not the serial killer person when it comes to like 
my interests and what I find fascinating and what I tend to go down in rabbit holes in when I'm going through true crime. You know, I like cartels. I like I like big crime. I like mafias. I like mafiosos. I like heists and like stuff like that. But this particular person has always stuck with me as being one of, in my opinion, one of the scariest serial killers in American history. And this is the Night Stalker, Richard Ramirez. Yee. Yes. So because his crime spree was so abhorrently vicious, uh, which is partly why he is as terrifying as he is, I, I'm going to I'm I'm I don't want to gloss over any of his crimes in particular, but I do want to just touch on a few of them because they sort of tie into the character but I'm not going to go into all um, incidences of his crime, but I will be at, at bare minimum uh, reading the names um, of the victims because not only did Richard Ramirez target people, but he targeted families. And he is he has a lot of, he, he committed a lot of things that made the entire LA County feel unsafe in every aspect of their home life for almost... Jesus a year and a half. And I will preface that all of the crimes and the items that I'm going to describe happened only in six months. Oh, God. All of this happened. Um, 17 out of the 18 crimes that I'm going to touch upon happened only in six months. 17? hmm And there were murders and incidences before the ones that he was convicted of that were still coming to light while he was in prison. So I'm going to do my best to tie all of this together. But the focal point of some of the things I want to talk about are also how he was caught and how I want to highlight the community that is East Los Angeles and how they banded together through an exhaustingly stressful time in 1985. So here we go. The Night Stalker Richard Ramirez was born in El Paso, Texas in 1960. Not in 1950, which is why I had a little panic attack when you said what you said. So, and... They're the same soul. <laughs> yeah. He was the youngest of five siblings, and he grew up in a uh, not the most hospitable family life. Uh, when he was younger, he did actually witness a murder. He suffered from two major childhood injuries, one of which he was actually unconscious and bleeding from the head for up to six hours. Was he also a bedwetter? <laughs> Undisclosed information, but I would not be surprised if there was also some arson and or uh, hurting family pets uh, in there as well. However, yeah. he he did show uh, pretty early on um, some uh, tendencies for sexual sadism, and he was uh, often caught with his cousin being a peeping Tom uh, in his hometown in Texas. Um, as he grew up, he uh, ended up dropping out of school he had some issues with drugs, had some issue with petty crime. Also, when he reached like the age of 17, 18, he had a horrible track record with his personal hygiene. There's a reason why I'm highlighting this because it's one of the most defining characteristics of him. He did not brush his teeth. He did not do anything in terms of dental hygiene. And he often did not get haircuts unless he did it himself. Um, he was just a very disheveled troubled looking individual from 
the early onset. He also had a sweet tooth. So he basically rotted his teeth out of his mouth. And he was also on a number of drugs that he preferred to take. And those also uh, damaged his teeth to the point where he, uh, while he was committing these crimes, had anywhere from up to nine to 11 rotten teeth in his mouth. Uh, yep. I'm, I'm when, when I say that this is the most terrifying serial killer to me, these are all factors into that because I am going to, to unfortunately highlight some of those, some of those things. So yeah. his, the breadth of his crimes happened over two years. Um, his, his larger, more serious crimes happened over two years. Sorry, I didn't mean to laugh. No, it's fine. You're fine. You said you said you were just talking about dental hygiene, and then you said the breath. Of his, <laughs> and that's, that's even breath with a D. That's not even yeah. with yeah. That's good. That's but good. it just it just sounded the irony of me saying that is fine. That's fine. That that's laughable. My brain only works in puns, even in uncomfortable situations. <laughs> it's how we cope. It's how yeah. we cope. It's okay. Yes. <laughs> so so when I say that he is to me one of the most terrifying serial killers in American history is he not only was a frenzied killer, which means he didn't really stalk his victims. He just decided in the moment that he was going to do something. He was definitely a prowler um, in all the different neighborhoods that he went in, but this dude had no consistent MO. He had zero Mm -hmm. consistent MO. He used knives. He used guns. He used blunt objects. He bludgeoned people. He beat them. He tied them up. Um, The only main calling cards that he tended to have were he would make a lot of references to uh, Satanism. He would often say, if you, if if you don't scream, I won't call Satan on you. And he would, he would kind of reiterate a lot of these things, Uh, but he definitely did, did have a sexual Satanism aspect to a lot of things. He did perpetrate a lot of rape. He, he specifically tried to pick out female victims for this, but he was non-discriminatory in terms of entering people's households. And he would enter households with entire families living in them at the same time. So there was usually multiple people present in some of these instances, which was very concerning to the police that he just had no wherewithal, no fear, no, he did not he was very brazen. He was exceedingly brazen. And he, he wasn't he, like planning these things. No, he was not planning these things. The The main reason why I'm also not touching upon every single crime is because there were children involved and there were um, children who were victims and they are still unnamed to this day specifically. Okay. So um, I'm, I'm not I'm I'm going to reference them, but I'm not going to go too deep into that because that that's even a hole too deep for me sometimes, uh, especially with yeah. the crimes that he did. Totally fair. Yep. So to Los Angeles, it was a frightful time dealing with a serial killer that seemed to not only be so brazen in how he attacked, but he went everywhere. He went everywhere in L.A., San Francisco, and Orange County. Overall, uh, as I mentioned, there were 18 crimes that were officially connected to Ramirez within this time period. The first one that was recorded for his actual arrest was uh, the murder of Jenny Vincow in, in 1984. He terrified the um, the community because a lot of his attacks would happen in clusters. So he would actually go from different towns in multiple day stints, and then he'd go quiet. And then there were even instances, and there were quite a few, and I'm actually going to go into one, where he committed multiple crimes in the same day. Oh, God. Yes. So, uh, for instance, on March 17th, 
Ramirez attacked Maria Hernandez after she pulled into her garage and tried to shoot her in the face with a 22 caliber pistol. It actually miraculously deflected off of her keys as she covered her face away from the gun. And it actually shot her only in the hands instead of actually hitting her in the head. Unfortunately, her roommate, Dale Okazaki, who was home, was not so lucky and uh, suffered two gunshots from the head and was dead on scene when the police arrived when Ramirez found her in the house. Within the hour of that attack in Rosemead, California, Ramirez attempted a deadly carjacking on Veronica Yu in Monterey Park that was nearby, not even not even 25 minutes away from where he was. He attempted a deadly carjacking and he shot Veronica Yu twice in the head. Um, she survived at the scene, but unfortunately died at the hospital later. So there were a couple instances where he attacked multiple people in multiple different locations within the same day. And during daylight, too. During daylight, like. some of the home invasions that he did, which gave him the uh, which gave him the nicknames Valley Intruder and Walk-In Killer. Those were also uh, monikers that were given to him by the press, but Night Stalker seemed to be the most accurate yeah, uh, in terms of description and the one that stuck the, the best. So Ramirez was very hard to catch because he did go everywhere. Um, just to name a couple of the different places in L.A. County, that he went to sometimes one right after the other day where police where, uh, police departments weren't even able to communicate with each other on daily reports to say this happened. Right. It normally took a couple of days for someone to say, oh my God, the exact same thing or something similar or the person you're that your victim described also happened here. So he went to Glassell Park, Rosemead, Monterey Park, Burbank, Arcadia, Glendale, Diamond Bar, Northridge, Mission Viejo, in San Francisco. Oh my God. Mission Viejo is in Orange County. San Francisco is in San Francisco County. The other towns that I mentioned are all in LA County. So he went across three different counties, sometimes going from one end to the other within days and just yeah. would find and there's whomever. just no way to there's just no way to communicate that information effectively. Correct. Because you're all in different jurisdictions. Correct. And this was also 1984. So you know the yeah. we relied on the telephone a lot. Uh, in all of the accounts and in all of the crimes, there were people who were attacked, but there were also survivors. There were people who didn't die. There were people who were able to testify to accounts of uh, his many different attempts that he did. And they all started connecting some similar tactics, which started helping, which started to help identify all of the actual Night Stalker cases. He would burglarize homes he invaded, as well as typically assault the women, and then would either try to murder his victims or would often tie them up. Sometimes he murdered them. Sometimes he didn't. Sometimes he left them for dead. Any survivors were counted that he made odd references to Satan or satanic rituals. Um, I'll go into a satanic ritual here in just a moment that he did, which is a pretty good encapsulation of different tactics that he had. And any survivor who could describe him all mentioned how smelly his breath was, how awful his teeth were, how it was somehow difficult for him to talk and how he just smelled absolutely rancid. Wow. Every single survivor absolutely connected the dots when it came to that of, you know, his teeth were disgusting. When he talked really close to me, he smelled like death. There were, there were many accounts where people said he smells like death. So again, terrifying. 
Well, terrifying, but also I'm like wildly curious as to like, because like clearly they see him, right? He's not wearing like a mask. Oh, no, or, he's he's completely like, he's just completely Yeah. They, so they see him. Mm-hmm. So they have like some sort of like idea of what he looks like. So here's the hard Maybe. part. So here's the hard part. So in 1987, they, they started compiling different descriptions. Sometimes he would wear a hat so they didn't know how big or how long his hair was. Sometimes he didn't wear a hat. Other times people would say he has really crazy eyes. Other times people would said he was wearing sunglasses so I didn't see. So I, I didn't see his eyes. So they mm. they start they they tried to start making connections, but what was the other frustrating part is that anytime they tried to pick up fingerprints, markings of any kind, they asked if he had tattoos, any type of other identifying information that they could use cuz because eventually that's how they did find him is because there there was identifying information. This dude, he was so frenzied and he was so spur of the moment. He was still methodical when he left. He still wiped things down. He still covered his hands. He still didn't use duct tape. He always used rope. It's like he was so methodical because he knew how he wanted to kill. And he knew that he didn't want to get caught, that he still took those steps. Right. So up until uh, later on, up until later on, which is a story which I'm going to say, they did find a lot of partial prints and they did find a lot of like indicators of who he could be. But there was nothing that tied him all the way together or was identifying enough that they actually knew who it was. Right. Which is super frustrating. I still think that like if he if he smelled that bad Mm -hmm. and that was like the one descriptor that Mm -hmm. matched everyone's accounts. Like, just in regular day life. Like, wouldn't that person stand out to you? You would think. Like, the general public? You would think. I feel like if someone was just, like, mumbling and smelled like death at the grocery store, I'd be like, um, this man's sus. And um, and to that point, I don't know how much of that they released to the public. Mm, to the public. Fair. So fair, that's, fair, fair. That, that could be another contributing factor as to why that wasn't a quicker yeah. thing. Um, and and also the time frame, you know, this was in six months. Yeah. If they don't have enough information, they might not be releasing information to the public just simply because they didn't have all of it together yet. Fair. Because even after when he was arrested, it still took them up until uh, 1989 to actually hold a trial, mm-hmm. which is fucking crazy. So, OK, so an example of the another example of his horrible crime spree that also has a, a pretty decent satanic example of what he asked um, on the night of May 19th, 1985, Ramirez drove a stolen car to Monrovia, which is another uh, suburb in L.A. County, and uh, stopped at the house of Mabel Bell, who was age 83, and her disabled sister, Florence Lang, who went by Nettie. She was 81. Finding a hammer in the kitchen, he bludgeoned and bound Lang in her bedroom and then bound and bludgeoned Bell before using an electrical cord to shock the woman. Sexual sadist. He uh, ended up raping Lang, and then he used Bell's lipstick to draw satanic pentagram symbols on her thighs, as well as on the walls of both bedrooms. The women were found two days later alive, but comatose, both from blood loss and their injuries. Unfortunately, uh, Mabel Bell did die later of her injuries. Um, However, Florence Lang did uh, survive. The next day, the exact next day, on May 30th, 1985, Ramirez drove the same car that he stole to Burbank, California. He snuck into the home of Carol Kyle, age 42. 
At gunpoint, he bound Kyle and her 11-year-old son with handcuffs, then ransacked the house. He released Carol in order to direct her to all the family valuables so he could burglarize the house. He sexually assaulted her repeatedly over the course of the day. And Ramirez also ordered her not to look at him, telling her at one point he would cut out her eyes and would feed them to Satan. He fled the scene after retrieving um, the child from the closet and binding the two together with handcuffs. So again, he left them without committing a murder. So he, he sort of picked and chose what he wanted to do. And not every one of his victims did die because he seemed to want to choose yeah. whatever to do which. He's spontaneous. So he's kind of like, he's making up as he goes along and he's deciding what he wants to do. Exactly. Quite spontaneous. He attacked people through three different counties um, and they were so scattered and patterned that the only real things that connected them were the eyewitness accounts. So at any of those survivors and the neighbors who caught glimpses of Ramirez leaving properties. So they started connecting that, oh, he's driving. Oh, he's walking through backyards. Oh, he's trying to find screen doors. So they they started trying to disseminate some of this information to the community. And there were reports of maybe failed attempts of Ramirez trying to get into different houses during this time. And so some of it worked. Some of it was a deterrent for him, but he was still able to find his victims. And also the terrifying part of that means that he was trying more often than the days that he succeeded. Like he was just, he was just right. trying all of the time. Yeah, just constantly doing stuff. Correct. So as I mentioned, I'm not going to recount all of the grisly murders, but wanted to highlight some of the stories, as I said above, uh, and the harrowing coincidence that finally led to his arrest. Uh, to take a moment, I want to acknowledge all of the victims of Ramirez's crimes, all 31 of his identified victims. Right. Their lives were either ended or changed due to this man's selfish, selfish actions. So to start off, Jenny Vincro. Maria Hernandez, Dale Okazaki, Veronica Yu, Vincent and Maxine Zazara, Bill and Lillian Doy, Mabel Bell and Florence Lang, Carol Kyle and her son, Mary Louise Cannon, Whitney Bennett, Joyce Nelson, Sophie Dickman, Leela and Maxon Needing, Shanarong and Sam Kid Kovanath, and their eight year old son, Chris and Virginia Peterson. Sakina and Elias Abueth and their three-year-old son, Peter and Barbara Pan, James Romero Jr. and his family, Bill Carnes and Inez Erickson. Now, when I say L.A. County did not mince their words when this man was on trial, they spent more money than the O.J. Simpson trial to convict Richard Ramirez. So... In reading off those crimes, I want to tell you successfully before I go into his capture because it is a harrowing and interesting account. Overall, Ramirez was convicted by L.A. County of 13 counts of murder, 5 counts of attempted murder, 11 counts of sexual assault and rape, and 14 counts of burglary. Oh my God. They threw the fucking book at him and he deserved it. Well, yeah. Yes. But like... They threw the fucking law school at him. They did. They they dumped the courthouse on his ass. So to uh, show how brutally and vicious this man was, again, these crimes were committed in six months, in a span of six months. Uh, one of his earliest murders was actually a nine-year-old girl that was not even linked to him until 2009. It is confirmed that Ramirez murdered a nine-year-old Chinese-American girl named Mei Long 
in a basement of a hotel that he was living in at that time in San Francisco. It is not the Cecil Hotel. I didn't want to get people's hopes up, but it is it is there. <laughs> so um, Ramirez was sentenced to death by gas chamber, and he spent 23 years on death row. He did not meet his fate. He actually died of complications from leukemia in 2013. He got zero fucking appeals. Nobody wanted to defend his ass, so it's fine. <laughs> so the part that I wanted to highlight, especially to just give one hell of a shout out to East Los Angeles, because this is one of the coolest stories in terms of a community saying, fuck you to a serial killer who was terrorizing them for months. Um, I'm going to tell you a quick story about the two last families that I mentioned there. So one of the main reasons why Richard Ramirez was caught was because of a 13-year-old boy named James Romero. Hell yeah. Yes. James Romero and his family had just come back from vacation. And they were, they he, James Romero was up a little late, probably later than he should have been. And he's chilling like a villain in his home, in his room. And he's hearing a lot of weird words, weird words. No, weird sounds happening outside <laughs> of his outside of his window. He takes a peek and he sees that there's a man walking around his neighbor's house. Thought that was super weird. Gets up, gets his dad, says, dad, there's somebody skulking around. It's kind of weird, kind of giving me the heebies. I would really appreciate it if we could like get this guy out of here. So as his dad's, you know, preparing to, to do this, Ramirez, because it is Richard Ramirez, hears the commotion happening inside the Romero house, decides to chicken out, decides to dip. This champion of a teenager gets out of the house, walks down the street, follows Richard Ramirez and sees him get into a car. This champion of a hero gets the first four letters and numbers of the license plate describes the car perfectly to the police and it's immediately on their radar. It is oh the dead of God. night. It is the dead of night. His parents let him leave the house? <laughs> he he I don't I don't know if they did that, but he basically <laughs> said this this is giving me some weird vibes and I'm going to go ahead and do this. Not only did he get the car, but Ramirez had to do a U-turn. So Ramirez and him locked eyes before he oh, left. Oh shit. So he gave a description he gave the car description, which was an orange car with a chrome top, and he gave the first four digits, I'm just going to say the word digits, of the license plate. So not only did he witness the face, but he got a perfect description of the car. The car was found two days later, and it was confirmed that it was stolen, and it was the first time they had a complete fingerprint available oh. on the car. So because of Jose Romero, I'm sorry, not Jose, James Romero, because of James Romero, they were able to get a full fingerprint and not even a couple hours later, they were able to connect it to his rap sheet in El Paso, Texas, because they sent it. Oh, they sent shit. it out. They sent it out to every neighboring state. Yeah, they sent it out to the FBI. They sent it out to fucking everybody. And we're like, we need to find this fingerprint. And they finally found it. El Paso, Texas said, yeah, we got that and sent their sent his rap sheet to him, had a picture, had his mugshot in it. So here's the other thing that here's the other part that that led to it at the same time that they were searching for the car at the same time, the fingerprints were identified. And so this was all happening at the same exact time. Ramirez broke into the house of Bill Carnes and his fiance Inez Erickson. 
Ramirez entered the sleeping couple's bedroom and awoke Carnes when he was viciously cocked with a 25 caliber handgun. Ramirez then shot Carnes three times in the head before turning his attention to Erickson. Ramirez told her that he was the Night Stalker. So Ramirez started identifying himself to his victims. This, this is the last set of victims. Started yeah. identifying himself as the Night Stalker and forced her to swear that she loved Satan as he beat her, unfortunately, and then bound her with neckties that he found from the closet. After stealing what he could find, Ramirez dragged Erickson to another room, sexually assaulted her, and then he demanded cash and jewelry and made her again swear to Satan that there were no more things that he could steal. Before leaving the home, Ramirez told Inez Erickson, tell them the Night Stalker was here. So he's connecting the Satanism. He's connecting his horrible smell, which she described. And he's also connecting the fact that he's the Night Stalker. Yeah, he's like admitting to his identification. Exactly. Erickson was able to untie herself in record time, ran to a neighbor's help, got help, was able to apply the correct pressure to her injured fiance's head to the point where he survived three bullets to the head. Holy shit. Yes. So they both survived. Was it tampons? So I have no idea, but you know what? Honestly, those things are super absorbent and it probably helped. No, like you. Okay. But like for, for anyone listening, like carry tampons. Carry tampons with you always. Yep. Always. I mean, like, not just for, like, general emergencies, but also they can plug up bullet wound holes. Yep. And get and save you some some time. And broken noses if you put it right in the right spot. Oh, nice. And if they bleed. Mm-hmm. They're perfect. <laughs> <laughs> so Erickson gave such a detailed description that it actually matched the report coming in the next day from James Romero. So because it was happening in the same department, they were able to link those up very quickly. That narrowed down their search in order to find the car. They found the car because of both of these factors. Not only that, Erickson was able to walk them through every aspect of where Ramirez dragged her. And they found a perfect footprint cast Mm -hmm. that they were able to use. And then that was later used as evidence in in the trial. Not that he had like a fucking ice cube chance in hell to get out of this. But you know what I'm saying? Also, can you imagine trying to defend someone like that? Like, just like, like the defense lawyer would just be like, your honor, my client is guilty. (laughs) The dude walked into court with a pentagram drawn in his hand. Yeah. And showed it often to them. So like, there's no hope. There's just collect, just, just collect the check and move on your way. You'll be fine. One of the reasons why I like can't like, even though my, my dad would say otherwise, but I cannot be a lawyer because I cannot be put in a situation like that because I'm too, I'm too bluntly honest. I would just be like, nah, he did it. He told me. (laughs) Yeah. I can't, there's no hope. You deserve to be in jail. (laughs) If you can't creatively argue on your folks' behalf, it's just not worth it. It's just not a profession for you. All right. So I will remind you also that Ramirez is only 25 years old at this time. He's only 25 years old. Ew. I don't like that. Nope. That's too close to home. I'm 26. I do not like that. (laughs) I'm so sorry. On uh, the 29th of August, which is very close to when he was apprehended, Law enforcement officials decided to release his mugshot that they got from the El Paso, Texas police from his 1984 um, arrest of an auto theft. And the Night Stalker finally had a face. So now the person who has been terrorizing 
LA County, Orange County, San Francisco for the past six months has finally been identified and is plastered fucking everywhere. At a police news conference, it was announced, we know who you are now and soon everyone else will. There will be no place for you to hide. And boy, can I tell you one of my favorite capture stories of all time, because that was fucking true. The next day, Ramirez took a bus to Tucson, Arizona to visit his brother, unaware, unaware that any of this news had been released. So as he came back to California after failing to meet his brother on the morning of August 31st, he he returned back to California. He walked past police officers who were staking out the bus terminal in hopes of catching the killer should he attempt to flee on an outbound bus. So they were watching to see if he was going to flee the city. And in actuality, he fucking returned. Crazy. Also, he looks smelly. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He looks smelly. Oh, yeah. So... To avoid the cops, he actually snuck into a convenience store. And that's when he unfortunately noticed that there were newspapers everywhere with his face on them. An elderly group of Mexican women identified him right when he got outside the store as El Matador, which is the killer. Started pointing at him saying, that's fucking him. He's right here. Ramirez freaked out, actually ran across the, the, the Santa Ana freeway. Ran across like, like eight a, to like ten a highway. Yes, like eight to ten lanes of traffic. Ran fucking across it to escape the police that were going that that were chasing him. He attempted to carjack a woman, but was then chased by even more bystanders who not only recognized him but were also trying to stop the carjacking. By by the time that like shit came to culmination, this dude had forty people running after him, running after him. through cul de sacs. Like mob style. Mob style. Complete mob style. They were running after everything. Every house that he was passing was calling police. Every house that had a fit male was running after this man. Oh my God. So by the so um he tried another carjacking and he almost succeeded until somebody walked up behind him and smacked him in the head with a metal bat. Yes. Yes. So, Give that person a medal. They beat the absolute living shit out of this dude. And by the time the police showed up, they actually had to control the mob more than they had to control Richard Ramirez. That's amazing. So in the Night Stalker capture, 40 police cars showed up. There were seven police and news helicopters that were in the area. After two attempted carjackings, there was a mob of upwards of 45 people that chased and beat him through six different neighborhoods. I'm sorry, over six different streets, not neighborhoods. That's way too big. Six different streets. There is an infamous picture of him being detained in a police car with a news van that was right next to him filming the whole thing. His entire head is bandaged and he looks like an alien with a black eye. He just has a bunch of cotton all over his ass and he is sitting in the backseat of a car after getting the absolute shit wrecked out of him. That's amazing. So freaking shout outs to East Los Angeles for saying no more. We're done with this crap. We identified the killer. Take him out, please. There was a mob at the police station who were calling for blood. That was even bigger than the mob that was there. Like hundreds of people. Yeah. Yeah. Calling for blood for this man. So it was Berkowitz for LA County. For those of you who don't know Berkowitz, that's Son of Sam. So a couple other weird just factoids and happenstances. 
because it took up to four years for this to go to trial, uh, because he was arrested immediately, he was detained, there was no bail, there was no nothing. He was in prison up until the time of his court case. And he actually was able to get free dental care. And he had his entire mouth excavated and fixed by the time the trial came around. And you want to know what started being a concern? He started to look too good looking to be considered the Night Stalker. Because he got his fucking teeth fixed. Because he got his fucking teeth fixed. He was starting to get fans from all over the country sending him letters being like, oh, Richard Ramirez, you're so handsome. I don't think you could have done this. I think they had the wrong man. There's no way someone like you could be that smelly rapist and murderer that was described to me viciously. Why did they allow him to get his teeth fixed until after the trial? That's like partially evidence, right? I have no idea. Like that has to be evidence. I have no idea. Like or or evidentiary support Elwood style. Like, right? like you can't allow them to get that's so they had that issue with Ted Bundy because they were trying to match his teeth. Uh-huh. They had that issue with Ted Bundy and during the trial because they tried to match his teeth to the bite marks. Yep. And he tried to spew some whole like that's not my teeth. Mm-hmm. And it's like don't let these people get dental work while in prison. No fucking shit. I'm so glad that I had an outrage moment for you, too. This makes me very happy. <laughs> that makes me so mad because that just feels like tampering with evidence. Like, you can't you can't just, like... It was a large identifying piece of, yes. of his consistent crimes. It was, it was, yeah. it was an identifier of, of what he did. Yep. Like, why? So, like, the state gets to bathe him and, and, and brush his teeth for him and suddenly he's no longer a suspect? Like, also, it takes some critical thinking skills to understand that, like, you need to compare the person you brought into custody, not the person you have had in custody for the time being. Mm-hmm. Because that's also, like, when when someone describes someone who's disheveled and they're on their own, not taking care of themselves. Uh-huh. But... They're in the, the, oh my God, this drives me insane. Yep. It's yep. getting rid of, it's, it's tampering with evidence. Correct. It's tampering with perception. It's tampering with perception. You even. cannot yep. change the appearance of your suspect if it makes them look more innocent. Correct. 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 So upset. So upset. So mad. So Want to hear the other uh, weird happenstance that happened with the trial? Yes. Yes. There was a juror that was murdered in the middle of the trial. And everyone was terrified. Everyone was terrified that Ramirez had something to do with it. Did he? He did not. Weird. On August 14th, the trial was interrupted because one of the jurors, Phyllis Singletary, did not arrive at the courtroom. Later that day, she was found shot to death in her apartment. Oh my God. The jury was terrified, wondering if Ramirez had somehow directed uh, this event from inside the prison cell or whether or not he could reach the jurors. However, it was ultimately determined that Ramirez was not responsible for Singletary's death as she was shot and killed by her boyfriend in a femicide, which I'm going to properly identify as what the fuck it is, who later committed suicide with the same weapon in a hotel. An alternate juror who uh, replaced Singletary was too frightened to return back to her home. So even, even the alternate juror who replaced her was terrified, being like, well, shit, Jeez. something might happen yeah. to me. So... 
Well, especially with all the Satanism shit. Like. Yeah. Oh, and and that that was that was honestly the really big saving grace in terms of like connecting his personality and connecting his personhood to these crimes was that he did not. He first of all, he didn't really deny anything. And anytime he was in there, he had pentagrams. He had you know weird shit that he did. He exhibited yeah. very strange behavior. Even if they did fix his teeth, and even if he did look a little bit more presentable, it it still didn't fix a lot of his mannerisms or his actions or the words that he said. Well, yeah, you can't dress up a pig and... Can't put lipstick on a pig. Right. So those are some of my tidbits about Richard Ramirez, who is still to this day, and I have consumed a lot of true crime, to me, still one of the most terrifying serial killers in American history, with how frenzied he was, how vicious he was, how indiscriminate he was, and... Just he was still methodical enough to get away with it for as long as he did. And he was just the, the teeth, the teeth thing just sells it. The the the, yeah. the gross, nasty breath just sells it. That's uncomfy. Yes. Um, so that's the story of Richard Ramirez. Okay. So in good fashion, to to sort of fit the theme, Richard Ramirez during his crime spree 100 percent stayed at the Cecil Hotel. Yay. He did not have victims at the Cecil Hotel, but people who described his potentially multiple accounts that he was there when he stayed, whether he was just going through L.A. County, whether he was on a down period in between his murder clusters, whether he was doing you know anything of the sort, often said the reason he was at the Cecil Hotel was because he could fit in at the Cecil Hotel. Yeah, yeah. that makes so. sense. It does. You know what? Going back to my comment of like, wouldn't you notice someone smells that bad? If you're hanging out with other people who potentially have hygienic issues, mm-hmm. you you wouldn't stand out. You would not stand out. In the middle of a Publix, you would stand out. Yes. But like at the Cecil, you probably wouldn't. Probably wouldn't. Who's going to ask you questions? No Or one. at least on Skid Row, you probably wouldn't. Yeah. So he he tended to frequent a lot of areas like that. And and was not a very well-liked resident. It was not a very well-liked person who stayed there, but he blended in enough to the situation that he didn't stand out enough to get in trouble. Interesting. So, however, there is a very sad story of someone who was beloved and someone who was well-liked, and it involves their untimely death and also the Cecil Hotel. So to switch stories, the sad one, this one doesn't make me quite sad, is to switch to Goldie Pigeon Osgood. Yes, Goldie Pigeon Osgood. Goldie Osgood was a telephone operator. Um, She did not marry and she did not have kids. And if she did, nobody knew about it. And she actually moved to the Cecil Hotel because it was affordable in 1958. As we've mentioned, the Cecil Hotel was a location where you could have long-term living and long-term residencies the Cecil Hotel often and frequently became an option, especially for pensioners. So folks who were retired, folks who um, were living off of a fixed income, it was an easy way to find affordable living that they could be in. Again, unfortunately, there wasn't a whole lot of information about Goldie Osgood's previous life, but it is estimated that when she started living at the hotel, she was at least 60. Claims about her actual age are inconsistent across sources. Some sources said that she was 75. Other ones said that she was 60. 
uh, when she started living at um, the CISO Hotel. But regardless, she was at least a pensioner in her former life. She was a telephone operator and uh, she needed to live somewhere affordable and somewhere she hoped was going to be safe. Other defining characteristics of Goldie was that she was a big fan of the Dodgers and was often seen feeding birds in the parks nearby or at Pershing Square. This is where she got the nickname Pigeon. She was very well liked by the residents, and on the day of her murder, many residents were very shocked by the news. After a day spent like just any other, Goldie said goodnight to fellow tenants of the Cecil Hotel and walked into her room for the final time. Only an hour later, one hour later, Goldie's body was found and discovered by a man distributing telephone books to the different hotel rooms. Goldie was found strangled with one of the hotel's hand towels by an attacker who still, to this day, has not been caught. Additionally, it was revealed through through other bulletins, it wasn't necessarily in her initial news coverage, that Goldie had also been badly beaten and was sexually assaulted. Upon discovering the ransacked room, the police noted that the bags of birdseed and, and her Dodgers cap were strewn on the floor close to Goldie's body, and it's possible that her attacker had lain in wait in her own apartment for her return to the Cecil that day. Oh my God, so he was like in the room. Mm-hmm. Friends also living in the hotel were stunned by how quickly the attack had happened. Several told police that they had seen Goldie only moments before her body was found. And there was like a weird anecdote that the police had mentioned in some things of being like, well, at least it was over quickly. Like it was like a weird, it was oh. like a weird offhanded comment that sort of sat wrong with me. So unfortunately, there wasn't a whole lot of evidence to go off on. As far as they knew, Goldie had absolutely no enemies, had nobody who wanted had it out for her. She didn't really have anything valuable in terms of possessions that that would have been stolen. It didn't seem like burglary or robbery was at all a motive when it came to this. So the police had a whole lot of nothing. They did follow through two leads, at least one of which was actually given to them by the L.A. County Medical Examiner. The first one was a man was arrested around the same time as Jacques Enlinger, was a 29-year-old who was discovered roaming the streets close to the hotel, was covered in blood, but unfortunately, he was later ruled out as a suspect. (laughs) He was just covered in someone else's blood. He was covered in someone else's blood, and it wasn't as good. So, yeah, that's unfortunate. He was committed. He was was convicted for a different crime, or as far as I know, that's, that's what was said. Uh, didn't really go into who that victim was, but... Okay. Yes. Gotcha. Uh, Goldie's death was connected to another crime in the area. The link seemed tenuous, but it was one that was brought to their attention by the medical examiner. There was a connection made between Goldie's death and then the death of another woman named uh, Mrs. Viva Brown. The second lady had been murdered a couple of months before Goldie, and Mrs. Brown was a 50-year-old woman... And the manner of her killing was similar to Goldie's, including the fact that she was staying in a hotel in the same area. Huh. It wasn't the Cecil, but it was a murder that happened in a hotel for an older middle-aged woman. And that's how that happened. So unfortunately, um, and there was actually this really good article on Medium that talked about it. I think it was in in terms of what I found to be the most heartfelt out of the accounts. Mm -hmm. And... She was able to preserve like some of the old photos that were found because, again, she had no living family. So a lot of her possessions and a lot of the pictures that they were able to use in the newspaper 
were not preserved. So those are the only actual images of Goldie Osgood are two announcements of her death in a newspaper. Oh. Yeah. And that's one of those, you know, we we don't know fully what happened. We don't know fully right. who did it. If they were to find somebody who could be a perpetrator of it, they would likely be close to their 80s right now. Wow. If it was someone who is alive yeah. and is young enough to have done this, then, you know, that's that's when it, it would have happened. So, yeah, they haven't had any leads. It was one of those unfortunate, um, as you mentioned a lot with Skid Row, and as you've mentioned a lot with that area, it seems to have not been followed through yeah. in terms of being uh, a high priority, but also in understanding in true murderino fashion. Uh, not every case, unfortunately, can be solved, but that doesn't mean that that person doesn't deserve to be remembered. So, yeah, again, the medium article was really good. It was very heartfelt. It was very nice. Yeah, I think the, I mean, obviously, I think it's with any area. Not every case can be solved. We Correct. don't have the manpower to do so, but also just with that area as a whole. I mean, it, it's even, and again, I hate bringing it up because I, I didn't really enjoy it, but the the Netflix documentary does speak on how many, excuse me, 911 calls the police received from the Cecil Hotel wow. daily. Wow. Like, it was like, it was more than several daily calls. So, I mean, it adds to the list of, like, mysterious deaths that occurred in that hotel that, like, for for things like Elisa Lam and the Night Stalker and, and Jack, like, they're, they gained notoriety mm-hmm. for the type of people they were or the type of things that they did. Right. And, like, that's what got more eyes on their case to be investigated. Correct. But there's because of the crime rate of that area, because of how that area was treated by L.A. and the authorities, a lot of stuff that went down in that hotel is a mystery, like is just unsolved or unaccounted for. Like I I think of like they have a list of like deaths that have occurred. But but how much shit has occurred in that hotel that no one knows about? Right. Like it's weird bermuda triangle unsettling yep Yep. bermuda triangle yeah it's a fucking uh thing and you want to know what pop culture item encapsulated that in terms of like i remember watching this and being like how can they keep getting away with this Mm. much fucking murder like i don't like there's a lot of death that's happening in one single solitary place and i have no idea how that keeps happening so both of these stories in some form and fashion were actually represented in the American Horror Story season five Mm -hmm. hotel. Yeah. So Hotel Cecil is actually a direct inspiration for the Hotel Cortez in American Horror Story. A brief synopsis of this particular season, because American Horror Story changes its story every season, usually has the same cast. Some there's obviously different cast changes, you know, like Miss Lang and her not being there anymore. I'm, I'm a big Jessica Lange fan, but Sarah Paulson is That's eternal, fair. so it's okay. <laughs> so <laughs> we're good there. So when you first start out the season of season five, the story is set in the Hotel Cortez, an enigmatic six-story art deco hotel based in Los Angeles. The plot follows the Countess, who is played and portrayed by the absolutely stunning Lady Gaga, who is the owner of the hotel as she tries to protect herself and her children from the fury of her past lover, who's played by Angela Bassett, 
that seeks uh, revenge on her as well as John Lowe, who's played by Wes Bentley, a Los Angeles homicide detective on a task force for a series of grisly murders that lead him to the direction of the hotel. So that's how that's how the series starts for you. And let is me that tell what you it was about. <laughs> yeah, let me tell you that is not what the end is about because there are so many twists and turns in this. There are so many revelations in in true American horror story fashion. There are so many layers each and every time you go through an episode that you just go, "What the fuck is happening?" In a fun way. In a fun way. What the fuck is happening? Mm-hmm. So I am gonna I am gonna be talking a little bit more about the series because I need to get to a particular episode which features this and then also make the connection between at least the character that is portrayed and and what they're trying to to show so i love i love my note that i put there i'm like well at least that's what it looks like at first (laughs) so as the season progresses you see the layers start to unravel and you piece together um the different antagonists than how they actually started the show And there is a huge twist at the end, which I will not spoil, but I do need to talk about a couple of the other characters and how they factor into this. The hotel itself was built by rich man millionaire John March, who is played by American Horror Story sweetheart Evan Peters. We come to find out that uh, March is actually the Countess's former husband and is absolutely batshit crazy and a sadistic serial killer. March's character is inspired by H.H. Holmes in that the reason he creates this hotel is not because he's, you know, just this enigmatic new money millionaire. It's because he wanted to create a house of horrors where he can murder people. Great. Yeah. Having constructed a number of secret rooms and hidden hallways to carry out his twisted hobby of murder... I said John before, I meant James. I actually wrote those down completely wrong. I'm sorry. It's James March. It's James March. James used the hotel's infrastructure to hide all evidence of his life as a serial killer, creating blocked hallways, bricked rooms to make his killings more fun and to keep his victim bodies hidden. He did participate in necrophilia, which is super gross. That was a weird episode. And his wife, Elizabeth, who is Lady Gaga, was kind of an enabler. When it comes to this, she didn't mind it too much. So take take that as you will. Oftentimes, James took great fun in the art of murder by killing his victims in a number of playful, thespian-esque ways. He would actually like make games out of this as he would hunt, torture, and murder different guests, just like H.H. Holmes did. Lovely. Yes. And again, he was a necrophile. And other times when he was just finished with everything, he would actually shove dot bodies down a chute and his like assistant would like take care of it. So it's a really fucked up season. It's very good. It's one of my favorites. So as we also come to find out, a lot of the residents at Hotel Cortez are actually already dead. So yes, I do remember that. Yes. Part. So a lot of the people that you're also interfacing with are actually just echoes of people who died there. Um, mm-hmm. So because March died on the premises, he he still swings his big dick around and acts like he's the big man boss, but he's not because he's dead, but he lives within his own fantasy world. And as you start to see there's so much supernatural energy in this location that these ghosts can manifest and do a lot of physical things. So one of these very important physical things is when you have large 
aspects of supernatural energy, they oftentimes attract other large aspects of supernatural energy. If you believe in that stuff, negative begets negative, which means negative attracts negative. So if March is a crazy serial killer who runs a hotel in order to commit murders, who the hell do you think he's going to invite to a dinner party? Uh, murderers. Yeah! Wow, I was right. (laughs) In the episode named Devil's Night, which is episode four of season five, Lo, who is the police officer, the main protagonist throughout the series, Wes Bentley, is invited to March's suite in order to attend a dinner party. I'm just going to read you the guest list. The guest list of the attendees to this dinner soiree are as follows. James March, the Zodiac Killer. Oh, Jesus Christ. Jeffrey Dahmer, Eileen Wiernos, John Wayne Gacy, and you fucking guessed it, Richard Ramirez. God damn it. Yeah. Okay, but also, first of all, first (laughs) of all, let's just pause for a second. Yes. How the fuck he know who the Zodiac Killer is? So the Zodiac Killer is actually like shown in a hood and like undescribed because that's, you know, that that was the motif that they even gave them in the news articles of like it was a hooded figure that you couldn't see blah, blah, blah. So they they actually just gave him the thing and he had the he had the symbol Fair. on his face. But but that means that James March mm-hmm. at least knows the mailing address to mail him his invitation. Just that's saying. true. So that's true. Um, there's got to be a name attached. To that first of all, second of all, why would you have all of those people in the same place? And so I is love- that like a thing? Do you see like are serial killers friends or do they see each other as like competition? Like do they see each other as like? hey, this is a support group for serial killers. Like, we can all commiserate and, like, (laughs) share tips. Or do they see each other as, like, competition, like, stay off my turf? Yep. I I have so many questions about the nuances (laughs) of dinner parties between murderers like i don't and then and then my last question is why would you invite the police (laughs) (laughs) why indeed you have to watch that series to find out because that is not the big reveal that i am going to tell you Ooh, i know so go watch season five you don't have to have any other seasons under your belt to understand it you kind of want to know season one just because there's a reference to it but it's not super important now you're also thinking why are all these serial killers here but also all of these serial killers are dead. So how and why would their energy still be tied to this hotel? The answer is they stayed at the hotel. The fact that Richard Ramirez stayed at the Cecil Hotel, which is a direct inspiration for Hotel Cortez for season five American Horror Story, they created this entire episode based off of the fact that he stayed there, creating this motif that because bad energy stayed there, Bad energy stays there. And they actually do this with a really cool line in it when Richard Ramirez shows up and they go, oh, is Charles Manson coming? And he goes, nah, he hasn't gotten his invitation yet because during the time of this filming, Richard Ramirez is dead. Right. And Charles Manson's still alive. Still alive. So he can't attend the party because he's he's not not dead. dead. I thought that was a cool little nod. So 
again, American Horror Story gets weird, but I appreciate the world building that they do with their supernatural aspects. Well, and they're also like, they base that off the Cecil Hotel, but they didn't base that off of the, they base those things off of the killers, not the victim. Correct. So like that's, I feel like that's a major difference in pop culture when you're basing something off of true crime. Yep. One, are you being respectful of the the story you're depicting or mm-hmm. being influenced by? And two, are you like, are you essentially using the victims in a disrespectful way? Correct. Like, are you mocking them or or sensationalizing them? using their image in a distasteful way. And I feel like American Horror Story really doesn't do that because they focus more on the the villains rather yes. than the victims. Yes, I would agree. And to that point, when Richard Ramirez, who is the first person to show up on the episode, when Richard Ramirez shows up and checks in at the hotel, the uh, front desk lady, Kathy Bates, tells him, you know, go, go to this room like your uh, gift is waiting. And Richard Ramirez's gift is to sneak into a room and murder two people. That's his oh. gift. His, yeah. that, that's his welcoming gift for March is just like, hey, you know, go do this. And those citizens, like the, the people that are depicted there are real people. So real people are dying in this hotel based off of fake, or not fake, but based off of ghosts. So ghosts, ghosts can so keep... ghosts are committing murders. Correct. So ghosts, no, can... but the ghosts don't stay there because like none of those serial kill. Well, so hang on. So like none of those killers died in the hotel. No, none of those killers died in the so hotel. So they just visit the hotel. Yeah, yeah. John, John Wayne Gacy died in Illinois. Eileen Warehouse right. was executed in Florida. Jeffrey Dahmer died in Wisconsin. And the Zodiac killers, since we don't know, I'm guessing maybe died in California. No, I think he's still existing in Texas as a senator. <laughs> <laughs> but he might be briefly in Cancun. Who knows? Who knows? But good top. So though. like they just <laughs> they just like visit the hotel because that's a, a supernatural area that they can basically materialize. Correct. I'm assu- okay. Yep. And so for the, for anybody who doesn't know, these are all pretty famous serial killers. And I appreciated the fact that they had Eileen Wernos in there because I think she's a very complicated story. And if you have not seen the movie Monster with fucking Charlize Theron in her Academy Award winning depiction of Eileen Wernos, I recommend it. And also just like, I don't know, just it was it was really cool. It was, you know, it's depressing as all fuck. John Wayne Gacy and Jeffrey Dahmer are also top on my list of people who creep me the absolute fuck out. Yeah. Along with Richard Ramirez, so it it, it was definitely like <laughs> I also I also put the words that this is an absolutely ridiculous serial killer satyr. Those are the actual words that I typed in my notes. So <laughs> cool, I can't believe I did that. But again, Ramirez again is the only actual person who, on record and recorded, has actually stayed at the hotel at the Cecil Hotel. Yeah. So, it, but it was it was cool that they sort of created a storyline in the show around like because negative energy stayed there negative energy stayed there and that's why they're able to kind of manifest this because richard ramirez is visiting he's they're they're all visiting they right, don't stay just, there they don't stay there they're visiting and they can do it only one night a year which is why it's planned ah oh, so and i that, see yeah okay. that was and then you know and as, as i mentioned before richard ramirez died in 2013 so i think that's like right when this like right before it was filming so yeah it was a like if you haven't watched american horror story i know that's it's 
you have to at least watch season three. But if you haven't watched the show, uh, it does some pretty interesting things with some dark subjects. Definitely not for everybody. But uh, that is the link between American Horror Story and the story of Richard Ramirez. Nice. Yeah. And then people were making allusions saying that Illusions? Is that the word I'm looking for? I don't think so. Not sure what literary word I'm looking for in that. We're making analogies. That's the fucking word mm. I'm looking for in saying that Kathy Bates's character was supposed to be similar to Osgood, but I didn't see that at all mm. okay. because her story is way different than that. And I, I have never really seen... Uh, as you mentioned, things on American Horror Story that seemed distasteful enough to say that it was victims of a location were then the people that were being portrayed. But like Sarah Paulson's right. character, you know, was a heroin addict. Yeah. And she died on the location. And that's why she was stuck there. Right. So I feel like that's within the essence of the Cecil Hotel where they can make things uh, vague enough and unrelated enough, but at least refer back to the themes of the inspiration. So, yeah. All right. Well. That was some deep stuff. Yeah. But all interesting. And yeah, if you guys stuck with us this long, thank you. Major thank you. We're doing a big episode to come back with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's worth it because this hotel, again, Bermuda Triangle. Bermuda Triangle. Bermuda Triangle. Fucking weird. Freaking Skid Row, let me tell you. Yeah. But use, use Yelp. (laughs) <laughs> when looking for a place to stay. <laughs> if it says... We're not sponsored, but like... <laughs> look at the reviews. Oh, my Lord. If if the murder and or death per square footage of a building is very high, <laughs> don't stay there. Yeah. And if you do stay there, be mindful of it. That's all. Yeah. But, um, yeah. Any Any last thoughts? Just thanks for sticking with us. And we, we we hope we're creating interesting stories that are giving you fascinating factoids that you find digestible and enjoyable. So thank you for, for sticking with her locked files. We appreciate it. We appreciate your, your flexibility uh with us. And our schedules. Yes. <laughs> and we hope that you know you're you're again to just bring it back to what we talked about at the top. Uh we're very proud of you for surviving and keep on doing your best. Gosh darn it. Hell yeah. To quote the Academy Award winning movie, High School Musical. <laughs> I don't know. I don't even think they won, won like a Kids' <laughs> Choice Award. To quote Kid Choice Award nominee, High School Musical, we're all in this together. We're all in this and Then just break together. into a dance battle. Um, but thank you guys so much for uh, listening to our episode. If you got any questions or you want to keep talking about the subject or whatever, you can find both me and Yeba on Twitch. Mm-hmm. I'm under Little Red. She's under Yeba Deba. That's me. And then, yeah, we hope that you enjoy the episode. Give it all the stars and likes and thumbs and retweets and wherever you find this. Uh, give it a good review. Tell your friends. Tell your therapist um just you know and and stay safe and ha- you know ha- i would we'll, we'll see you on the next one yeah we'll, stay you sleuthy. On ne- we'll talk at you in the next one yeah yeah yeah. stay sleuthy and i'm actually really excited for the next one so yeah it's gonna be hype it's gonna be good i'm ex- it's one of my favorite <laughs> topics and i'm so excited <laughs> i am so excited 
So yes, you'll hear from us soon. We'll just say that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks okay, so much. Go- thank you. Goodbye. Goodbye.